Remain standing, please join me in prayer. Father, we give you thanks that you are the God who speaks to us, that you have spoken through your prophets, that you have spoken through your word, and that you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, continue to speak. We ask that you would speak now. Speak and let us hear you. And more than that, let us see Jesus, the incarnated one, the crucified one, the risen one, the soon-to-come-again one. And sing Jesus, may we be transformed to become like him. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning, friends. It's good to see the upper third of your face this morning. I am very confident that we have all had some kind of experience that over-promised and yet under-delivered. From the menu pictures at your favorite fast food restaurant that looks so delicious whenever they're sitting there glowing, especially in the late night light, to what you actually get when you unwrap whatever it is that you like. The contrast under-delivers, to say the least. Except for it, maybe Taco Bell. Whether it's the epic preview of the next great summer blockbuster that whenever you see it, it just ends up being another mediocre Tom Cruise movie. Whether it's the preseason hype of your favorite team and then the contrast of recognizing that you still are a fan of the Texas Longhorns and they're in the midst of another meddling season. Or I should say the South Carolina Gamecocks, right? For might be a little too close to home for some of you. We've all had that experience of something that overpromises and yet consistently underdelivers. And of course, those examples that we experience in our day-to-day lives are easy to just laugh off, right? What's not easy, however, to laugh off is whenever the something that overpromises and underdelivers is in fact a someone. Whether it's a parent or a sibling or a friend who are constantly promising you things and then breaking those promises, or simply just overstating what they intend to do, and then failing to live up to those expectations. Whether it's a boss, or even, God forbid, a pastor who appears to be this visionary, kind, gracious leader, and then they end up just ending up turning out to be uh, simply a narcissist, someone who is not in it for your best interests. They overpromise or they broken promises. And when we've experienced those, as, as I know many of you have, as I have, it does something to you, right? It can mark you forever. It can lead to cycles of hurt and anger, and more than that, maybe mistrust in people and authority and in institutions that have far-reaching ramifications. And yet as certain as I am that that has happened to you, I'm also just as certain that you have probably, like it or not, done that to someone else, right? You've overpromised. You've broken promises. You've been someone else's disappointment, someone else's reason for lacking trust in whatever your role may be. And so our question this morning is that in a world that is filled with overpromisers, and broken promises, who or what can we trust? Where can we put our trust? And so it is this morning that we read from our Old Testament passage that you just heard this incredible promise, this encounter with a God who makes incredible promises to his servant David. 
In fact, these are some of the most incredible promises made to anyone in all of Scripture. Whoa. Is that me? We'll see if it keeps doing it, and I'll grab the handheld. Yeah, perfect. So, yeah, people have said that these are some of the most incredible promises in all of Scripture. Um, Some have even said that this is the most important passage, one of the most important passages in all of the Old Testament. It's the Davidic covenant. When God comes and makes a covenant with David. Covenants, as many of you know, is simply a partnership. It contains both a promise and a commitment. One party comes and promises to do something for another, oftentimes weaker party, and that lesser party makes commitments to give loyalty and honor to the greater party. I will do this, God says to people throughout the Old Testament, and you will do this. You will respond to my actions with faithfulness. We see this kind of promise to Noah whenever he promises that he will no longer destroy the earth, never again destroy the earth by flood. We see it with Abram whenever he calls him out of his father's land and says, go to the place I will show you and I will make you a great nation that will bless all the nations of the earth. We see it at Sinai with Moses and brought more broadly the people of Israel when God promises to them that he will give them a place, give them a land that will be their own and their response to him is obedience, keeping the covenant that he has promised them. And so here we come to this culmination point of the Old Testament where he promises to David that he will have an eternal kingdom, that a king in his line will reign and rule forever. And though it doesn't explicitly say the word covenant, like it does in those other examples of Noah and Abraham and Moses, uh, commentator Bill Arnold says that this is very clearly a covenant because we find from the rest of scripture that this became somewhat of a constitutional text. There are multiple Psalms, 72, 89, and 132, if you want to look it up later, where they call God to account and say, you have made these promises to David, and we are not seeing them fulfilled. It was like the Magna Carta or the Declaration of Independence. It was an agreement made here by God to David. And so I invite you together, open up your Bibles to 2 Samuel 7. On your pew Bibles, if you have one of those in front of you, that's on page 259. And just quickly, I'll say that this entire book, 2 Samuel, chronicles the life of David. He is anointed king in 1 Samuel, but then he becomes king in the second book of Samuel. And the entire book tells the story of his life, of his reign, of his many great victories, and of his abysmal failures. The chapter before, the, verse, the chapter that you just heard read, chapter 7, In chapter 6, we see that the Ark of the Covenant, which is the the resting place of the presence of God, is brought into Jerusalem. David has won Jerusalem from the Jebusites, and then they bring in, with much celebration and sacrifices and dancing and rejoicing, this visible sign of God's presence among them. Good things are happening. Good things are on the way. And this is significant because back, all the way back in the... Deuteronomy 12, God promised them that he would give them a place where they could worship him and then his presence would dwell among them. And so could it be that this is the moment when that is coming together? They have a place. They have rest from their enemies. Could it be that God now is going to dwell among them? All of the promises coming to completion here in this one moment. And so, of course, it only makes sense 
that David, this king after God's own heart, would sit there in his palace and say, here I am in this glorious place, and yet the presence of God, the ark of the testimony, is in a tent, is in a curtain. And so he has this idea that he will build God a great house. How could the almighty God, the God of heavens and earth, dwell in a tent when his king, his anointed king, sits here in a palace? This week, I'm certain that some of us will receive a very kind, gracious gift, and we will be utterly horrified. Why? Because we did not buy them a gift in return. I don't know if you've ever had that experience when someone that you, you know, maybe, maybe like second tier or third tier friend gives you a gift just because they're good people and you didn't think to get them one. And the guilt and the shame of that is just awful. That's something like what David is experiencing here. God has given him a great gift. And so he must reciprocate, right? That's in our human nature. When someone does and shows us kindness, we want to respond with kindness to them. And so initially with this idea, the prophet Nathan says, do it. All that is in your heart, go do it. The Lord is with you. And this, of course, was very common in the culture surrounding David. With kings in the ancient Near East, there was a symbiotic relationship between gods and rulers. The gods would appoint a ruler, and then whenever that ruler was established in his kingdom, he would respond by building a temple for that God. This is a very common, there are many examples, both in Egypt and uh, ancient Mesopotamia. The God would establish the king, and then the king would return the favor. They would become somewhat of a sponsor or a patron for that king. And there was an ongoing cycle of reciprocity between God and king. So it makes sense. But that night, God gives this surprising answer this vision to the prophet Nathan and says, go tell David this. You want to build me a house? It's emphatic there. And really throughout this entire passage, the, uh, all of the verbs are meant to imply emphasis, the emphasis of God condescending to David. He says, you want to build me a house? And he says, first of all, I've never had a house. I've always ever traveled with my people Israel in this tabernacle, in this tent. And more so, I've never asked for a house. I didn't ask the judges that came decades and centuries before you for a house, and I did not ask you for one. So what's going on there? Arnold, again, who I quoted before, says that Yahweh will not be domesticated. He will not become simply a patron of an earthly ruler. He cannot be, and we'll find this later, whenever Solomon, David's son, builds him a temple, says the highest heavens can't even contain you. How can this house here on earth contain you? God says here, in effect, that he is not like the gods that surround. He's not like other gods. Yes, he says, I've made you a king. I've established your rule and reign. I've given you rest from all of your enemies. And now I've given you and your people this place. But that does not mean this is a quid pro quo agreement. This is not a reciprocal relationship. I have chosen to bless you for your sake and for my people's sake, not because of what you have done, not because of your conduct, not because of your sacrifices or your gifts or your good intentions towards me, but simply because I have chosen to do it. God says, I will do this for you. 
As I said, the emphasis throughout is that he is the one that's acting. He is the one who's promising and he is the one who will carry it out. And so the first thing that we learn this morning about God's promise here to David is that it is unconditional. It is without precondition. God simply says, I am doing this for you. God continues and says, tell David, my servant, thus says the Lord of hosts. That means, uh, that phrase is Yahweh of armies. It's one of the highest titles that we find in the Old Testament. And he reminds David how far it is that he has brought him. He has taken him from someone who kept sheep in a pasture to be the prince of the people of Israel. He says, my presence has been with you and it has given you victory over all of your enemies. I have done this. But get ready, because I'm about to do something even greater. I'm going to give you a great name, like the great ones of the earth. I'm going to give you rest from all of your enemies. And more than that, not just you, but your people, I'm going to give them an undisturbed place. And it calls to mind the time of the judges. And if you've ever read the book of Judges, you know it's just, it's just, it's rough. Every generation, they encounter an enemy that is simply harassing them and attacking them. And he says that I will give you a place and my people will be undisturbed. They will be able to truly rest. In contrast to instability and recurrent harassment, as Robert Alter says, you'll be undisturbed. You'll have a place. And then in verse 11, the second half of verse 11, he says, Moreover, the Lord, Yahweh, declares to you that the Lord, Yahweh, will make you a house. Is David going to build God a house? No. God is going to build David a house. He has already blessed him so much. And here he says that he will himself build this house, build a line of kings that will endure. This is a promise that is simply unexpected. David would have never dreamed when he was with the sheep pasturing, and even when he was anointed king, or even whenever he slayed Goliath through the power of God, that this would be the promise, that he would have God, have God would build him a house. He expected something that was fairly standard, an agreement between the God and the king, but this is so much more. It surpasses his wildest dreams. And so God's second promise to David here is unexpected, beyond words. God's promise continues in verses 11 through 14. He says that after you, your house will be extended, that the offspring, the seed that comes from your body will continue after you, that he, your son, will build me a house. There will be a house, but it will not be you that will build it. We learn more from other places. Um, I think it's Chronicles that says that it was because David was a man of bloodshed. He was a man of war that he was not allowed to build God a house, that his son, though, would. We see that in the life of Solomon. And more than that, God's promise is that I will be a father and he will be a son to me. That right there is covenantal language. There will be a special relationship between Is that all? There we go. There will be a special relationship between David's son and God. And more than that, it says that when there is iniquity, when there is sin, that has historically disrupted God's relationship with people, that I will not remove my loyal love, my covenantal love from your son. It was taken from other people. It was taken from judges who messed up. People like Samson, 
God's covenant of love was removed from them. Like Saul, who was anointed king before David, it was removed from him. But for David here, that will not depart from your family. God says he will build him a house and a kingdom and a throne, and it will be established forever. So God's promise here to David is unconditional. It is not reciprocal. It is unexpected. It is so much far beyond what he can think or imagine. But the best part is that God's promise is unstoppable. Anyone who has read a book on the English monarchy or even watched The Crown, as we reference here very often at the cathedral, knows that monarchical successions are complex. They're fraught. They oftentimes end in disaster or at the least confusion and much drama. And yet here God says to David that you, before, beyond your life, even as you die, your offspring will sit as king. Despite your sin and your children's sin, I will not remove my love. Your throne will endure forever. Commentator Dale, Dale Davis says that death will not annul this promise. Sin cannot destroy it and time will not exhaust it. These are truly amazing promises that God gives to David here. But as those who have experienced great promises, but then experienced disappointment, or had what seemed to be faithful promises that have been broken, simply broken, we have to ask, has God delivered on these promises? Did God keep his word? It didn't look like he would. When four chapters later, David commits adultery, some would say even rape, and then murder, God didn't remove his love. It didn't look like God would keep his promises whenever David's son, Solomon, went after gods of the surrounding nations and offered up sacrifices to them, even going so far to offer up his son for a pagan god. It didn't look like God would keep his promises when wicked king after wicked king came through David's line and through violence and rebellion, it was almost snuffed out. It didn't look like God would keep his promises whenever Israel, through their sin, was conquered and taken into exile, taken into Babylon. It didn't look like it whenever they had returned to the ruins of their cities and of their temples, and it didn't look like it when 400 years God did not speak. But as Walter Brueggemann reminds us, this is the quote in your bulletin, this is the character of the energy in the gospel. Apparently, failed promises are being kept just when we thought they were abandoned. And so in Luke 1, we see God keeping his promise whenever that word comes from the angel to Mary. Verse 30, and the angel said to Mary, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great, and be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. God was keeping here his unconditional, unexpected, unstoppable promise that a ruler in David's line would rule forever. And yet even still, if you were to just read the gospel story beginning in Luke 1, it would not look like God is going to keep his promise. 
Sure, there were some miracles, there were some good teaching, there were some high points, but it still did not seem as though God were bringing about salvation for his people. It didn't look like that whenever Jesus is on the cross crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It didn't look like that whenever the disciples were on the road to Emmaus, whenever Jesus was dead and in his tomb. And yet, we know the end of the story that God kept his promise, that he raised Jesus from the dead, and that he even now is eternally reigning, the son of David and the son of God. And so, friends, though it may not look like it now in a world that has been racked with COVID and chaos and sickness and death and sadness, it may not look like God is keeping his promises. And even for you personally, Whatever it is that you are walking through, however it is that you're processing all of the darkness that we've encountered this year, Advent reminds us that regardless of how dark it is, that God keeps his promises. That they are unconditional to us in Christ. The New Testament says that every promise is yes and amen in Jesus. And even to those of us who are promise breakers ourselves, to those who consistently overpromise things and fail to deliver, we know that our God has kept his promises and he will keep them for us forever. Amen.